What do you desire in life right now? If I was to ask you to give me a Christmas list of three things, your Christmas list is supposed to be your three top desires. What do you desire the most in life right now? I'm sure that we would come up with a wide range of things with just the people that are in this room. We'd have everything from a new boss to a, to a shiny new snowblower to healthy relationship with our kids to better, better physical health to this new little computer gadget. We'd have a wide range of stuff that we would say, these are our desires that we would like to receive this Christmas season. As we combine the lists together, though, there is probably one thing that we could find in common with all of the lists. All of the lists might not list this one thing, but all of the lists would be seeking to achieve this one thing. You see, every human being, everybody in this room, we all share one common desire, the desire to be happy. Blaise Pascal said it this way, he said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This causes some to go to war and others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. All men seek happiness. It is the desire of every human heart to have gladness. It is the longing of every human being to experience an extended time of gladness. Every decision we make, Blaise Pascal would argue, is driven by this desire. Think of why you buy something. You buy something because you think what? It's going to make you happy. Why do you move somewhere? You think it'll allow you to have that job, which that job you think will allow you to be a little happier than the last job. The desire to be happy drives us. It drives our decision. The longing of our heart is for joy. That longing and that desire takes us thousands of years back to a man named Zephaniah. Most of you are probably unfamiliar with Zephaniah. Zephaniah is what we call a prophet in the Bible. He's got a little book that's in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible with this morning or on your phone, you can go to the Old Testament and look for Zephaniah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's extremely small, three chapters, which means basically he probably had about a 45-minute sermon. So he was a short preacher in time since. But uh, just a small little message from this prophet, Zephaniah. Chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 14 through 20. The longing of our heart for joy collides with what this prophet, messenger from God, spoke long, long ago. Long, long ago. Zephaniah 3, the prophet is saying to God's people in Israel, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah, most people probably don't know much about, Zephaniah was a messenger from God, basically sent by God to bring a message to this group of people we call Israel. They're basically a nation of, that belonged to God, that God created. This nation, though, had kind of done some weird stuff. Every once in a while, they'd make an alliance with another nation that they weren't supposed to. And they'd make alliance with another nation because they thought, if I make an alliance with this nation, they'll protect us. It'd be kind of like us saying to Canada, hey, Canada, we'd like to have an alliance with you because then we know another nation, the North Pole, which really isn't a nation, but the North Pole isn't going to attack us. But the point of the alliance would be what? You've got to go through Canada before you get to us. So oftentimes God's people, the nation of Israel, would make alignments with other nations because they wanted their protection or their help. Now, this went directly against what God said to them when he formed them. God basically said to them multiple times, hey, hey, I'll protect you. I will be your refuge and your strength. So whenever the nation was going and making other agreements, what were they doing? They were saying, well, yeah, God, that's a nice promise, but we can't really trust it, so we've got to get some extra help over here. So in other words, they weren't trusting their God. Israel did this multiple times, multiple different ways. It led them down paths where they would be conquered, times when they would just be living in a desert. They'd be stolen, basically, taken as slaves to other nations. It led to all sorts of trouble. So God would oftentimes send a messenger. And Zephaniah is one of those messengers sent to God's people at a time when the kingdom is actually split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Zephaniah is sent to the southern kingdom and basically told to tell the southern kingdom, hey, you need to shape up, humble yourselves, and turn back to God. Because if you don't, here's the wrath and the judgment that's going to come. So if you read chapters 1, 2, and part of 3 in Zephaniah, it's a lot of judgment. It's a lot of wrath. Basically, it's a warning. Hey, humble yourselves and return to God or this is going to happen. And they had a real live example of what could have happened because the northern kingdom was being overtaken by Assyria. Assyria, you could say, was the big bully on the block during that time. It's kind of like Russia. Bunch of military power, a bunch of money, and they just like to flex their might. They would just go and they would just say, hey, remember, we're in charge. So Assyria just took over the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is now well aware that what? We could lose at any moment. We could be taken as slaves or we could lose our land. Assyria could come in and conquer. So God sends this messenger, Zephaniah, and says, Hey, straighten up. Judgment's coming. Zephaniah came under a king named Josiah. Some of you might be familiar with Josiah. Josiah was one of the younger kings to ever take reign in the nation of Israel. Josiah was also one of the only kings that did right in the sight of the Lord. In other words, Josiah tried to restore some things back to the nation of Israel. Tried to say, hey, we need to get back around the temple. We need to open up the scrolls of the Lord again. 
So for a couple of years under Josiah's reign, they had some peace. So they listened to Zephaniah a little bit. But Zephaniah's message is still doom and gloom until you get to chapter 3 or to the end of his message. And then he gives this weird message that doesn't seem to fit in at all with what's going on around them and what they've heard up to this point. Because basically, Zephaniah at the end says this, Rejoice. There's lots of joy coming your way. Rejoice. All is going to be made well. Kind of a weird deal. Right in the midst of hearing doom and gloom, all of a sudden, rejoice! All is going to be made well. Sometimes prophecy, when you read the Old Testament, is really hard to understand because it goes back and forth like this really quickly. Well, on one hand, there was doom and gloom coming. They would be overtaken at some point after Zephaniah came. God would bring judgment again. But on the other hand, there was a fulfillment of this prophecy coming. And oftentimes prophecy is filled at two different times. It's dual. It's also kind of as as here, but not yet. So this prophecy that Zephaniah gives is, hey, joy is coming. All is going to be well. Look with me, if you would, at the, why he says joy is coming. Zephaniah 3, verse 15, he gets to the reason. He says, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil. So that's, he says, the Lord's in your midst. And then a little bit further down in his message, he says something almost exactly similar. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. Why is he saying, hey, rejoice? He's saying rejoice because what? The presence of God is coming. And where the presence of God comes, fear is removed, trouble is removed, and joy arrives. So Zephaniah is very simply saying, the presence of God is coming, therefore rejoice. And you're going to have continued joy when that presence comes. Kind of a weird promise to hear when you're in the midst of doom and gloom. But this is the promise that we find ourselves with this morning. Notice how this promise of joy and gladness intersects with the longing of our hearts. The longing of our hearts is what? Joy and gladness. The promise from God is what? Joy and gladness. We could look at multiple different verses this morning. And Isaiah chapter 35 is another promise. It's another prediction of Jesus coming. And that passage finishes with basically the exact same way. You're going to have exceedingly gladness and joy. And it uses both words, exceedingly glad and joy. Well, why would you say exceedingly glad and joy? Or look at Zephaniah 3, back up to verse 14. Look at this grammar. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. When's the last time you said exult with all your heart? Good morning, children. Exult with all your heart in this day that the Lord has given you. It's not terminology that we exactly use. And they just said rejoice, so why say the same thing again? because they can't emphasize enough. There's not a human word that describes enough the magnitude of the gladness that is coming. Whenever you see something in repetition in Scripture, they're using the repetition to describe in human terms the magnificence of what is coming. It's kind of like holy, 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 three times in a row. 
You just you say it three times because you're trying to describe the indescribable. You're using this terminology, rejoice, exult with all your heart. Or in other words, gladness boiling up within you. That's the promise that the prophets, the messengers of God, are giving to God's people. Saying, hey, God's presence is coming. So the promise intersects with the longing of our hearts. So then the question becomes, where can we realize this promise? Where can we find the longing of our hearts? Where is the promise realized and where is the longing of our hearts found? Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is before Jesus was born. It's in the process. Mary has received the news that she's going to have a baby. Mary is doing some traveling. Going to, going to see Elizabeth, a, a friend, family member. And she arrives at Elizabeth's home, Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 45. Luke 1, 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of, in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth is also pregnant. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, young women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here, a baby in the womb is leaping for joy in the presence of another baby that's in the womb coming. This is not some random detail that the author is like, oh, that's a neat little mother story. We should include that. This is God inspiring Luke, saying, hey, this is a way to remind them of what's being fulfilled through this baby. The baby leaps for joy. Why? Because that baby is in the presence of God. And where the presence of God is, there is fullness of joy. This is a big deal. The baby's leaping for joy because of the presence of God. Because in Jesus, we celebrate Emmanuel with an I or with an E, whichever uh, heritage you come from. Emmanuel or Emmanuel basically meaning the same thing, God with us. At Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of joy. So the promise is realized where? In the person of Jesus Christ. The longing for our hearts is found where? In the person of Jesus Christ. Joy is not some side deal. It's not some little, oh, little extra throw-in byproduct that we get. No, joy is what we get. This is what Jesus wants us to have. Look with me, if you would, to John chapter 15 now. The reason I'm kind of going to a variety of places this morning is I want us to see a theme, a theme that's loud and clear. John 15, verse 11, Jesus talking to his followers. So now we're at the end of Jesus' life. John 15, 11, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is directly saying here, hey, I want you to have joy. He's not saying, hey, and plus, check out what you get if you get me. No, he's saying, I want you to have this. 
Now look, John 17, verse 13, just another page. We got a recording here of Jesus praying. And check out what Jesus is praying for. This is Jesus asking God, the Father, for something on our behalf. And look what it is. I, I just get so excited. This is amazing what he's asking for for us. Verse 13, John 17. But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is Jesus praying for us that you and I would have what? Joy. Because in the presence of God, there is the fullness of joy. The longing of our heart and the promise of God land in the exact same spot, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we find our joy. Well, what's unique about this joy that we find in Jesus? Basically, what's the difference between the joy we're speaking about today and the happiness that a lot of us seek after or the happiness of the world? The uniqueness of the joy brought to us in Scripture in Jesus is this. It transcends circumstances because it's not from within us. The uniqueness of the joy of Jesus is that it transcends circumstances because it is not from within us. As Jesus is praying for joy for us, and Jesus also says in John 15 about our joy, notice very closely what he says. They may have what? My joy. So what is he saying? He wants us to have his. It's, it's not something we conjure up inside of ourselves, but it's a gift from him. It's something external that we receive. It's the joy of Jesus. We're actually receiving the joy of heaven. This is way different than the happiness many of us pursue here in this world. The happiness of this world, you could say, is a euphoric feeling that you have for a moment. And all of us have had this. We've all had that euphoric feeling for a moment when maybe we've gotten something new or we've accomplished something. You get that feeling for a moment, but what always happens? It goes away. Because that thing that gave you that euphoric feeling 10 years ago, guess what? It's not in style anymore. Or, or that person that you thought was going to give you that euphoric feeling, what happens? They change. Everybody changes. The happiness of the world and the euphoric feeling that lasts for a moment. That which Jesus is asking for and describing and that which the prophets are promising is an abiding gladness that's internal in who we are. That oftentimes expresses itself in the euphoric moment, but doesn't always have euphoric moments. It's an abiding gladness. The joy of Jesus is unique because it comes from outside of us. Because it's from Jesus himself. It's not from us. Basically, very simply, what the uniqueness of joy is this. It comes from something objective. Someone and something that does not change. And this is what we need in our lives. We need someone or something to cling to that does not change. That no matter the circumstances, because I don't think I have to tell you this morning, but the circumstances aren't always going to be good. I mean, no matter what, the circumstances aren't always going to be good. At some time, your flesh is going to fail you. At some time, you're going to have troubles at work. At some time, that thing that you bought that was the nicest toy possible, it's going to break. Even Apple products at some time, what? Wear down. 
So we need something objective that does not change. And that needs to be the source of our joy. It's kind of like the couch that we have in our house at home. We've got a couch at home. It's one of these things that you put multiple pieces together, and it's got recliners on the end, and then you stick it together and latch it together. And it's got big metal rails that are at the bottom of it. Well, we tore the carpet out of, our, out of our living room, and there was hardwood floor underneath there, and we still had the couch on there, obviously. The problem was, once the carpet was gone, every time you sat down on the couch or used the recliner, the couch would move. So now the couch is moving. What happens when the couch moves? Well, I hadn't thought of that, but that's probably true, yes. I was dealing with the more immediate dilemma. The thing just eats remotes. When the couch starts moving, you can't find a remote anymore because now the remote's just got a variety of places to go. Not only that, but what happens? There's Cheerios everywhere. Thing. There's garbage everywhere. There's no popcorn anywhere, but this other stuff that everybody else is eating gets everywhere. Because things start shifting around, right? It, the couch needs something to sit on that's going to stop it from moving. So we bought this last week some lining stuff that you put underneath rugs, cut it and put it underneath the steel bars on the bottom of the couch. doesn't move at all. It's such a joy. <laughs> the couch needed something objective that was going to hold it in place. You and I need something objective that's going to hold us in place so that when everything around us is going up and down, we still have the one thing, the one person we can hold on to. When we don't have that objective thing, guess what happens? All that stuff that's going on, it creates lasting problems. It's not Cheerios spread out on the floor or lost remotes. You know what it is? It's constant bitterness. Because there's going to be circumstances in your life where a family member does something to you that is it wrong? Absolutely. There's going to be moments where a coworker treats you unfairly. It's going to happen. And guess what happens if you don't have someone objective to hold on to during those times? Those things take root, and what do they end up producing? Bitterness, envy, malice, and strife. But when you have someone objective to hold on to, you know that as that bad thing is happening to you, you know that you've been forgiven by God and you can extend the exact same forgiveness to them because you're holding on to someone that doesn't change. The uniqueness of joy is that it's objective because it's outside of us. We're holding on to Jesus. The uniqueness of joy is that it transcends circumstances because it is not from within us, but it rather it's attached to an objective source, Jesus himself. Joy is also unique, though, in that it's this. It's already, but not yet. This is a phrase I would encourage you to memorize, because this can really transform your understanding of Christianity. Already, but not yet. See, there's so much stuff promised in the Bible that if you went to the Bible and you started reading the Bible, you could actually get discouraged because you could read the promise from Zephaniah and say what? <laughs> That's not happening. It hasn't happened at all. God's not, God's not keeping His promise of His Word. I mean, there's promises all over the place that you could look at and go, I don't see it. God must not be truthful. It's because all of this prophecy, we live in this time of already but not yet. What I mean by that is this. 
It's come into being, but not in complete fullness. For example, the kingdom of God, where Jesus reigns, it's already here when Jesus has control of our hearts, but it's not here in fullness yet, and we know that because what? Jesus isn't having full say over everything in the world. So it's already here, but it's not yet here in fullness. The same is true of this joy. The joy is here. The Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. The Apostle Paul even says, he rejoices in the Lord. How is it that he can rejoice in the Lord when he's in prison? He's about to die. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to face more persecution. Yet he says in the book of Philippians and other places, rejoice in the Lord. It's because the joy is already here. It's present, but guess what? It's not here yet in its fullness. Look with me, hopefully you're still open, to John chapter 16 now, right between 15 and 17 where we were just at. John 16, Jesus gets on this exact same topic of joy. John 16, 20 through 24, Jesus talking to his followers and he's preparing them for trouble. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from me. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus is given fair warning. There's going to be sorrow. And at times, the world is going to be rejoicing. This passage has got dual meaning. On one hand, the disciples were about to experience literally in a day. A day later of this, what's going on? The world is rejoicing. Because what? Jesus is dead and they're sorrowful. But then what happens? Three days later, who's rejoicing? The disciples are rejoicing and the political leaders are going, oh, what did we do now? So there was a time of sorrow, but yet then there was fullness of joy. What? When Jesus returned. But that return of Jesus was not permanent. That was temporary. So then what happens? that time of sorrow returns because Jesus ascends and is gone now, but then we have the promise that he will return one time for good. So we've got the joy we have now by clinging to Jesus who is not here, but yet we don't have the complete fullness until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, we've got the complete fullness that can never be taken away again. It will be here for everlasting to everlasting. So recognize, and it's important to recognize, and go in with good expectations. We're called to be joyful all the time, but recognize that the fullness of that joy is still not totally here until we're in the complete presence of God. So there's going to be moments when it's going to be difficult to have that abundant gladness. And recognize that that's why we're in the flesh. We need to fight through that. We need to ask God to restore us to joy during those times. But when you're in the midst of those times, don't let the guilt of not having joy drive you away from the source of joy. 
so often what happens is we go through a difficult time in life and then we feel guilty that we're not strong enough in our faith during that bad time, so we're not good enough. And then what happens? We kind of pull away from God during that time. Maybe during that time, we have to cling a little bit tighter to God and we're recognizing that we're just not going to experience some of those benefits that we would during a normal season. So we cling tight knowing that the fullness of joy is not here, but we can still have it kind of undergirding us that at some point we'll have it again. Don't let guilt drive you away from God, but rather let your guilt drive you to God to acknowledge it and confess it and say, God, I'm not strong enough. Help me to cling tighter. The uniqueness of the Christian joy is that it transcends circumstances because it's outside of us. The uniqueness of Christian joy is that it's already here, but it's not here in fullness yet. So how do I go after this joy? How do I have this joy? The how is found in one little word throughout all of the New Testament. That one little word is in. Rejoice in the Lord. We see it multiple times in the book of Philippians and other places. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is this joy that I want to have. What does it mean to be in the Lord? To be in the Lord means to be united to the Lord. To be united to the Lord means to be walking by faith and trust because our union with the Lord right now is not physical. We're not, I don't see God. I don't, man, I don't hear God in a voice. Our relationship right now is through a union of faith. I'm trusting the promises that He's given. I'm trusting the commands that He's given. And when I'm trusting those things, I'm in union with Him. And when we're in union with Him, we rejoice because we're in the Lord. The longing of your heart today is found in the Lord. It's found by coming to God and saying, God, I trust you. God, I trust your promises. I trust your commands. And I want to live in that trust. In the presence of God, there is joy. What do we have with Jesus? With Jesus, we have the presence of God. Therefore, there is the fullness of joy when we know Jesus Christ. Some of you today are seeking to endure right now in the midst of life. You're trying to endure a trial. You're trying to endure a difficult time. There's only one way that you can endure. That is if at the same time, you're enjoying it. This might sound contradictory, but if I want to endure, what do I have to do? I have to enjoy. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why did Jesus go through the cross? He let go of his divinity. This for the joy set before him. It says it right there in Scripture. Jesus wanted joy, so he endured the Apostle Paul was able to endure and remain faithful. Why? Because he continued to enjoy. If there's no promise of joy, how can you possibly endure in the midst of pain? If there's no promise of joy, guess what you end up doing? 
you don't endure. You just remain in that pain for good. But today, we can endure by beginning to enjoy. And we can begin to enjoy today by being in the Lord. Today, the longing of your heart can be found at the manger in the person of Jesus Christ. For He is the presence of God. And where there is the presence of God, there is the fullness of joy. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to save you. God with us. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks for the joy. God, we praise you that you are a joyful God and you are a giving God. God, today open up the heavens and pour out your joy right now. God, we pray that right now you would unite our hearts to you by faith. Give us the ability to trust that we may be united to you. This morning, O Lord, I pray for each soul that's in this room. God, I pray right now for each person here that they may experience your joy today. And God, I pray that you'd keep us mindful of the promise of everlasting joy in your presence. Thank you, God, for coming and living among us. Thank you, God, for the fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.